Welcome back to the Blue Line Millennial Podcast and happy 2022, everyone. Uh, joining me today for my first interview of 2022 is uh, author and journalist Toby Harnden. Uh, Toby, how are you, sir? Hi, Kevin. Uh, good to be with you. I'm well, thanks. Good. Toby's coming to us from uh, Virginia, I believe. Um, the, That's right. The wonders of modern technology is that Toby and I can be here on a video chat uh, and everybody else can can listen in uh, as we as we post this episode. I do want to take a minute um, and uh, uh, just uh, say how grateful I am for uh, three Houston police officers were, were shot yesterday, and I am uh, very happy to announce that they are all going to be recovering um, from their from their injuries, non-life threatening. Uh, it's it's been a hell of a year so far. It looks to be unfortunately a continuation of of 2021 um, uh, for law enforcement. Uh, stay strong out there, guys. Heads on a swivel, and uh, and keep staying safe. That's why I I, I had a conversation uh, with somebody. You know, you always tell people to stay safe, isn't that sort of given? Well, it doesn't hurt to uh, to offer a reminder out there. Um, so uh, with with that, we will launch into uh, this interview uh, with Toby again. Toby, you're the first interview that I've got of the year, so you have that distinction. Um, I do appreciate you coming on. Uh, I am recovering uh, well from COVID, but I do uh, every now and then I have to clear my throat, so I do apologize for that. And I just went to the dentist, uh, and so my mouth feels a little weird as well. <laughs> so <laughs> okay. if uh, if I sound weird uh, today, I do apologize to the listeners. But uh, Toby, I start off. Um, if I if I if I sound weird, that's just because I am weird because I haven't recently had COVID and I haven't been to the dentist, so that's just how I am. <laughs> Well, that's all right. And you can hear it. Toby is a, a, a man after my own heart. Toby is uh, is from England. Uh, I'm a second generation American. My family's all in Kent. Uh, so uh, ah. I am uh, I am very happy to be uh, speaking with uh, with another British person here today. Uh, you are the first uh, British person that I've had uh, on my first first European uh, that I've had on the show. Um, I've had uh, had a, a Canadian on, but uh, uh, you are you are thus the uh, the uh, the second international guest, as it were. So, um, right. But, well, uh, so I, I heard you talking about your 96 year old British, I presume, grandmother. Yes. You should really have her on. I would love to hear. So, I would love to hear about her. So, I recorded about a two hour conversation with her two weeks ago. Uh, my grandmother, 96 years old, she, she survived the Blitz. Um, uh, and in County Kent, uh, Kent was one of the hardest hit uh, locations in England because it was literally in the flight path of the Luftwaffe as they were yeah. going to London. And my uh, my grandmother remembers uh, uh, in in the beginning, you know, in 1939 there, uh, being sent to Northern Ireland, where you've actually spent a little bit of time uh, in your in your career. Um, sent over to uh, to Ireland. She was born in Derry, uh, but sent back to Ireland for mm. uh, you know the purposes of being safe. Uh, but she was at kind of kind of a weird like uh, 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 age there, where where she wasn't in Ireland for too long, and then she ended up coming back uh, and working in the fire service. And she acted as almost a sort of a dispatcher, so like bombs would fall, um, and then she would would call around to the fire uh, the firefighters to uh, wow. to get them to respond out. And what she was saying, it it actually made a lot of sense that she and another girl would would be the ones at the uh, at the fire brigade station, as it were. But all the firefighters were decentralized so that if a bomb fell on the station, it didn't take the whole fire crew out, um, which is yeah. kind of a kind of an odd thing to think that your grandmother was uh, was put into that position. Yeah. But um, she also recalls a time where uh, uh, Germans would drop uh, ordnance uh, 
in Kent, and uh, I can't remember if it was a bomb or a, a landmine, but either way, it was uh, it was a dud. It failed to detonate, but it landed on the street in front of her house, and she can remember the the uh, the army uh, ammunition officers coming out to uh, and the the well, I don't know if they called them explosive ordnance disposal back then, but she can remember them coming out to uh, to take the bombs away. So it's it's an interesting thought that. Uh, if it weren't for uh, one piece of shoddy German engineering, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, yeah. We have to hear. We have to hear from her. That, that's amazing. That's amazing stuff. And stuff that obviously, you know, the, the people who lived through that, you know, are not going to be with us for very much longer. So, yeah, I, I would love to hear that. But, yeah, she is. Uh, she she did have. Uh, she had. She had some stuff to say about. Uh, about old age and about death, which as her uh, as her grandson is kind of an odd thing to hear, but as as an interviewer uh, and and just somebody who's trying to get get the information and get her story, uh, you know, I could say that that well, I you know, I kind of I hear what she's saying. Uh, I don't understand it being only thirty one. I, I don't think that I could ever really understand it until I get to ninety six. But no, I do have that two hour conversation with her, and I think I will throw it up on the uh, on the podcast. I was I was hesitant, kind of going back and forth with it, but. I'll uh, I'll work on editing editing it and uh, and I'll get it up there so everybody can can hear from her. I I wanted to get it uh, to get it recorded because as you said, there's just not that many of them left and it's it's an important part of history, um, mm-hmm. you know that that we can all learn from and, and it's important to hear uh, and and sit and listen to our elders and what they have to say. Definitely, definitely. So uh, uh, to give everybody a little bit of background on Toby, I do have a, a copy of his newest book here, First Casualty. Um, uh, Toby is, uh, the winner of the Orwell prize for books, uh, a former, uh, foreign correspondent for the Sunday times of London and the daily telegraph. Uh, he reported from 31 countries and he specializes in terrorism and war. I should, he specializes in reporting on terrorism and war, not necessarily conducting, <laughs> although I'm sure he's learned quite a bit, uh, in his, uh, decades of experience here. As we've already discussed, Toby was born in England. Uh, however, he did spend a brief time uh, imprisoned in Zimbabwe, which we're going to get into that. He was prosecuted in Britain for protecting confidential sources and vindicated by a $23 million public inquiry in, in Ireland there. He's a dual British and U.S. citizen. Uh, he's a military veteran of the uh, Royal Navy. He spent a, a decade in, in the British Royal Navy, holds a first-class degree in modern history from the University of Oxford. And he's also the author of Bandit Country, the IRA and South Armagh, and Dead Men Risen, an epic story of war and heroism in Afghanistan. He's been based in London, Belfast, Jerusalem, Baghdad, uh, and Washington, D.C., and he has uh, reported from more than 30 separate countries. So he's uh, Toby's got quite the, uh, quite the experience, quite the repertoire to... Uh, to give us a little bit of insight into a few things today, I, I reached out to Toby <clears throat> to uh, to bring him on the show uh, to yes to talk about his book First Casualty, but also to dive into uh, the Troubles, uh, which was a thirty-ish uh, uh, year, uh, uh, really a very long season of violence in in Ireland, um, and, mm-hmm. and we'll get into that as well, and also to uh, to find out more about what it was like to be. Uh, uh, be, to befriend the police and the justice system in Zimbabwe. So, <laughs> but before we get into that, Toby, I do start off my episodes with a few icebreaker questions so that people can kind of get to know you a little bit better on a personal level. Uh, you can have a drink with anyone, living or dead. Who is it? And as importantly, what are you drinking? <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I have thought about this. So, it's funny. It, think about it. I realized 
and this has actually been a growing realization recently how sort of uninterested I am in a way in sort of movie stars and politicians and certainly royalty or you know I mean one I think one of the reasons why I'm an American citizen as well as British and if I had the choice I would renounce the British and the whole uh, Queen and Prince Andrew who I served in the same ship as and and aristocrats and I hate all that stuff the class system in Britain so I've, I have no interest in sort of big people and so um, the only living person I could think of that I would really like to sort of hang out with um, is Ricky Gervais Okay. Um, All right. Partly, be- partly because I much prefer the British version of uh, The Office. Uh, it's only one to watch, I think. Oh, those are fighting Carol. words. <laughs> <laughs> Toby just started um, a, an additional front for the impending World War Three. <laughs> right. Um, but also his stat. I mean, his and he's and uh, this show he's done Afterlife recently, which is great on sort of death and loss and the meaning of life. But, but also his stand-up stuff is um, amazing and sort of important because he very much believes in sort of speaking plainly and, and, and truth and not talking around things. And um, he's the least celebrity-like celebrity that I can think of. And so I would genuinely love to hang out with him. Um, but I'm going to cheat and choose a couple of dead people as well. Yeah, go for it. Uh, and, this is, and this is very much connected with what um, we were just talking about with your grandmother. I would dearly love to be able to have a drink with uh, my grandfather, who I, who I did know. He died in 1989 because he fought all the way through World War II. He joined the army in, um, I think, 1922 with the rank of boy and stayed until 1950 when he retired as, a, as an act, I think, acting major. Um, and, uh, you know, I would, he would show me his medals and he would tell me a few stories but I never really talked to him about what he'd been through. In fact, we probably talked more about uh, Rourke's drift uh, in the 90, late 19th century um, because that was part of his regiment. He was in the South Wales borders and they were descended from the 24th Regiment of Foot. And so Rourke's drift in the movie Zulu was like part of his regimental heritage. We would talk more about that than, than what he did in sort of, you know, North Africa and in, in India. And so, and that's, I really regret that. Um, and the other person uh, who I didn't I didn't know at all because he he died I think in 1944 was my uh, great grandfather on the other side my mother's side because he was um, an infantry sergeant in 1914 uh, who was captured in France in September 1914 and was in a German prisoner of war camp until March 1916 when he escaped and he had a very cool escape and with the picture of him with this disguise. And he had a sort of German pipe and he feigned, he, he was posing as a German veteran. And uh, he, he, you know, he, he feigned like a droopy eye. And, um, uh, you know, he died in his 50s uh, it, uh, during World War II, just of, of natural causes. But I would just love to talk to him about his escape and his life. Um, and I know that I've, I'm told that he was partial to a bit of whiskey. He was Scottish. And um, so I think we would share a glass or two or three of whiskey. Excellent. I like it. I, uh, uh, very similar. I mean, my, my standard response has always been my grandfather because I never got to meet him. Um, similar to yours, although probably later on in the war, my grandfather went through uh, North Africa and uh, Italy and into Greece. Uh, and he was, he was in Greece for the, 
the onset of uh, the Greek Civil War there. Uh, but I never got to talk to him. Never got to never got to meet him. I don't couldn't tell you what his voice sounded like. There's no recordings, and that was part of what what spurred me to to record yeah. my my grandmother. Um, and I'm I'm just finding I've turned into the family historian. And I'm just finding out about a uh, a great uncle that I had who uh, uh, had served. Um, I, I don't know what the beginning of his uh, military career looked like in the late uh, the late nineteenth century, but he ended up moving to Canada um, and then uh, signing up with the like the Canadian Expeditionary Force um, and uh, his unit, the twenty fifth Nova Scotia Rifles of the thousand uh infantrymen that that deployed to uh to the western front there 900 of them were killed wounded or captured uh so yeah. to just to just sit down with with them and and listen to their stories and i think poignantly i mean we can uh, when people destroy history um as as uncomfortable as some of it may be i think that you're destroying an educational opportunity um yeah. And, and to be able to sit down with our ancestors and talk to them and, and get their take on what's currently happening uh, could could help us out a lot. I, you know, I think there's a, some people are gung ho to, to do things like go to war and oh, for, you know, God and country and, and glamour and glory. And then they get back from it. And it's like, well, that fucking sucks. That that was a terrible idea. Why did I think I wanted to go do that? So to to just be able to sit down and, and uh, learn from their experiences would be a yeah, an excellent and I also opportunity. Think, yeah, I also think it's just great for perspective and uh, on sort of modern hardships and the things that people get upset about if somebody says something off color on Twitter or, or 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 whatever it is or they express an opinion that isn't the sort of, you know, the majority opinion of um, you know, people on the on the coast. And so you know my my grandfather, I mean 500 in in Libya in 1942, 500 members of this battalion were wiped out. Right. And when he came back from India, um, there were three ships that left, I think, Bombay um, and were heading to either Liverpool or Southampton. And my grandmother uh, was, you know, waiting on the jetty for the ships to come in. And two of them were sunk. And she didn't know which ship he was, he was on. And, and so she was there with, you know, her two children, you know, children, one of them, my father who was sort of one years old and you know with a one in three chance of her um of her husband being alive and these people lived through all that and actually tended not to really talk about much of it right and so i wonder you know you look at what sort of you know passes for for drama um you know and 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 you know upset and and all the rest of it now and i, I think you know the perspective we get from those sort of experiences um, is, you know, something that's valuable as well. Right, right. And what what truly matters, not not what Kanye West did with Kim Kardashian right. or, or something along those right. lines. And I pick I, I pick on them, but really, I mean, any any celebrity like there was there's a post going around on Instagram right now that says something to the effect of, "Can you imagine if uh, we didn't." give celebrities any voice and they made a post on Instagram and got, you know, 12 likes as opposed to 12 million likes or something like that. I was like, that's, that's poignant. Right. I mean, uh, you know, things, things might, might change a little bit, uh, uh, if, if that happened. Um, yeah. so, so, well, mo moving on there, my, uh, my next question, and you are actually the first author that I've had on. Um, so I am intrigued. Uh, what books are you currently reading? 
Um, so I'm currently reading um, a book called uh, Brothers, uh, Black Soldiers in the Nam, uh, which is about two guys um, who, uh, one of them was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, um, who uh, were drafted and were in Vietnam in 1967 to 68. Um, so that's what I've uh, I'm currently reading, and I've just finished um, uh, a book called uh, got it here, Legion Rising uh, by Jeff Morris, which he, he very kindly sent to me. Um, and he, and it, actually, he was in Iraq a lot of the same time um, I was in sort of 2004 or uh, five. but then he was there a second time during the surge later on when I, I wasn't there, I think around 2000, 2011, I think. I think that's right. Um, Anyway, it's uh, incredibly raw. I mean, he had eight guys under his command killed in action. Um, I mean, he had shards of, of, you know, his face was cut by shards of, of you know, sh- of skull fragments from, from one of his men. And uh, it's very raw, very honest. Um, and he doesn't... Um, he doesn't gloss over anything. Talks about you know about his you know PTSD struggles afterwards. So I've just been uh, I've been reading that. So so it's not it's not like sort of light bedtime reading yeah. at the moment for some reason. But I I, I go in but you know I go in phases. You know I often have about ten or twelve books sort of in some fashion on the go, and and sometimes I read uh, fiction, but I'm generally drawn to nonfiction. But occasionally I'll be having weird dreams, and I think. Maybe I should just read something a little bit lighter. Maybe but I should anyway, read about about fuzzy bunnies and cotton candy, you know, as right. opposed to as opposed to brutal uh, jungle or urban warfare. Uh, but right. no, I, I mean, I'm much the same way. I mean, your book, I'm I'm about two thirds of the way through, uh, and then I've got a handful of other nonfiction books. And and in talking about my great uncle earlier, I did find a book uh, called Mary Hell. Uh, which is a fun title for a book uh, about what the 25th Nova Scotia Rifles went through. And so in my effort to learn a little bit more, he's he's apparently named in the book. That's actually how I, I found out was from a Google search. So in an effort to, oh, great. to learn a little bit more about him, um, hopefully they're not like, yeah, this guy was a giant asshole, but <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll see what uh, what they say about him. Um, what yeah. uh, What is I mean, my, a- my biggest My biggest vice probably is owning books. And you know, so people, you know, I don't know how many, thousands i've got but um and people are always going well have you read them all i'm like of course i haven't read them all you know it's aspirational but i might do and sure you know if i live to the age of 200 i probably wouldn't read them all but occasionally i will pick up a book that i've had for 20 years and i'll be like wow i'm so glad i carried that book around with me for from sort of house to house because this is the moment but this is the moment for this book um and so you know I, I do a lot of stuff, you know, I think I'm reasonably technologically savvy and, you know, I, I do, you know, most stuff like on a laptop and stuff, but I haven't got into eBooks at all. And so I'm a big fan of hardbacks in particular and just having the, you know, the book in my hand and, you know, scrolling notes in pencil in the margins and underlining things and stuff. So, um, so yeah, books is a, uh, Books is my number one vice, probably. Books don't run out of batteries. That's my uh, my right. thing. I've always, I was, I think I was still working at a Barnes and Noble when when the first Kindle ever came out, and I was like, that's a cool concept until it dies, and you're sitting on a beach with just a 
paperweight and you can't do anything with it because you're nowhere near anything that can charge it. So, um, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Books, books are definitely, and have always been a vice of mine. My parents learned fairly quickly that to, to keep me quiet at the dinner table was just to let me bring whatever, you know, Harry Potter book or whatever I was reading when I was young. So, um, that's, that's kind of always been my thing. My wife is on me to, uh, uh, to maybe get rid of some of my books and I have a very, very difficult time picking out which books I'm willing to put towards this garage sale that we're planning. So it's, it's hard for me to, to let go of books. Yeah, me too. But I do do it. I do do it actually. So for a long time, probably until my thirties, I didn't do it at all. But now, um, if you have too many and they're completely disorganized, then the worst thing of all is when you, you know, you have the book and you want to read it and you can't find it. And so, um, there's, yeah, I do get rid of books. And also, if they're workbooks, like, so I used to, you know, be a journalist covering a lot of politics and stuff. And um, so I've got rid of nearly all the political books because I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to read some book, you know, right. Bob Woodward book about Bush at war or something. I mean, I might refer to it actually first casualty, you know, I did refer to stuff like that, but I don't need to have that on my shelf. So, you know, as time changes, um, you know, and, there are life changes and work changes. I do, I do kind of um, thin them out a, a little bit. And then, of course, in the process of thinning them out, I will often find I have a handle, uh, a handful of books twice, two copies. Right, and right. that's a sign you need to, you need to do something <laughs> about it. <laughs> then, it, then it's a sign of an addiction. But if anything else, <laughs> right, right, exactly. I somewhere uh, upstairs, I have a operating manual for like a 1982 Cessna 182 Skyhawk, which uh, I don't own an airplane, let alone that specific aircraft. <laughs> so I can probably get rid of that book. But I, my other, my other vice is aviation and, and I've got, uh, uh, I've got newspapers from, from Boeing when they were putting out papers in the sixties talking about uh, supersonic air travel. And there's an article in that paper about the Apollo missions and what's going to happen. And so I, certain things I just can't quite, again, I just can't will myself to, to get rid of, but no, I'm sure if I were to go through my books, there'd be, there'd be a couple, uh, dual copies as well there. So, well, so while I do that kind of stuff, um, like the Boeing manual, or whatever, I put it on eBay. So I sell, I, I don't do as much now because it's time consuming, but Somebody will buy that on eBay. Sure. And, you know, you get a few, you, you'll feel better because you'll get, you know, a few bucks for it. But more than that, it'll go to somebody who will really appreciate it. And then the other thing is, is if you put it on eBay and no one wants to buy it, you realize that it actually has no value. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then you feel better about giving it to the thrift store from Goodwill. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it like that. That's a good idea, though. I'll have to, uh, I'll have to do that if the, if the uh, uh, garage sale doesn't work out, I'll throw them all up on eBay. And if they don't sell on eBay, then then off to Goodwill we go. So yeah. Uh, last, uh, actually, check that. I've got two more uh, icebreaker questions for you. Um, what is uh, what is something that you wholeheartedly believe to be true that others say is a conspiracy theory? <laughs> so I thought about that, and so I generally don't believe in conspiracy theories. I'm, you know. I'm in the cock-up school of history, like most things are cock-ups, you know, mistakes, accidents rather than plots because people are generally speaking kind of crap and so they can't be well organized enough to, um, to sort of get a conspiracy together. So the only thing I could think of, which, you know, probably where you are wouldn't be um, a conspiracy at all, but where I am, it's, 
kind of like sacrilege. But kids and masks during coronavirus. I think kids should not have worn masks at any point during this whole thing. I think it's obscene that they're having to wear them now. I think that the cost of them wearing them in terms of socialization and learning uh, are considerable and the benefits are almost negligible. And so I think we've kind of been, there have been a lot of adults who are essentially abusing children to make themselves feel better by making them wear masks. So it's not really a conspiracy theory, but here I'm just like, I'm, I'm done. We want the masks off. And actually the new governor, Youngkin, has um, just um, signed an executive order saying that um, kids and parents should have choice. And seven of the counties, including my own county, is suing him in court and saying, no, no, we want masks. So they want masks forever, you know. So anyway, um, that's, that's the closest thing I could think of to a, um, a conspiracy theory. And certainly around here, you know, Oh my God! You don't believe in masks. You don't believe in science. You don't. You you think, you know, we're all. You know, you you, you want to kill children. You want to kill everybody. You know. So anyway, that's <laughs> that's the only that's the, the closest thing I could think of. You know, Toby, your dollar goes a little further out here in Arizona. You could. I I can show you some lovely homes in my neighborhood. You could come right out. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I can't even imagine. Well, I'm sure, eventually, uh, eventually, I will end up. It's much more towards the middle of the country. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, Virginia, though, is an absolutely beautiful state, though. I mean, taking it, yeah, taking it on, on its on its, you know, its physical beauty and, and just what you can see in the state. I much the same way. I'm from California. I just don't like to readily admit that to people. Um, but uh, I mean, there's a reason my wife and I are, are driving up the coast of California for our anniversary, because it's it's a pretty drive as long as it's not, you know, there aren't any mudslides and the, the mountains aren't on fire. It's it's beautiful out there. Yeah. So. <laughs> But no, I, I still see people. Uh, no, Virginia, Virginia is great, but obviously where I live is essentially the, the sort of the DC suburb. So Northern Virginia is very, very different from even you know, um, you know, fifteen twenty miles sort of west or south. Yeah, yeah, and and to to have that that separation, it's an, it's an interesting separation when you get to the East Coast, where where you do experience sort of those more maybe liberal policies, the closer and closer and closer you get to that DC metro area. And then like you said, you only need travel yeah. 15 or 20 miles, you know, literally a 30 minute drive. And you're like, it's almost like being in a completely different part of the country. So, but I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I, I drove past people today who, uh, three people on my drive to the dentist's office, um, uh, would shout out to my dental hygienist for not wanting to murder me like the last one did. But, uh, um, people wearing masks in their cars by themselves and they were not Uber. Right. <laughs> they were not Uber or Lyft drivers. And I was just like, what, right. what are you doing? I mean, so yeah, it's a free good. It's a free country. Good luck to you, but don't yeah. tell me, you know, that I have to wear one, you know, while I'm out walking the dog or whatever. Right. That. Well, and, and speaking um, about the kids, there was a, I just saw a freaking post of a, a yearbook where all these like, I don't know, third or fourth graders are all wearing masks in their yearbook photos. Right. Yeah, I know. It's uh, yeah, it's 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 crazy. Yeah, so. I mean, there was a funny meme I saw a while ago now, um, for a guy modeling the um the out outdoor seat seat belt. So you can wear a seat belt <laughs> when you're not in the car. You know? <laughs> 
if you want to wear a mask when you're in one on, on your own, then you might want to try the outdoor seatbelt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, of course, I'm getting spam calls right now. Sorry about that. They want to talk to me about my car's extended warranty, I'm sure. So, um, okay. Uh, I, I do want to, uh, want to kind of launch into as best as we can in chronological order. So you're, you're from England, whereabouts in England are, are you from and, and sort of what was, what was it like growing up? So we moved around a lot because, uh, my dad was in the Navy, um, until I think he left in 72 when I was six. So we, so I was born in the South of England, Portsmouth, like Naval port. Um, and I was there till I was nine. And then we had a big move up to the North of England, uh, Cheshire. So outside Manchester, uh, I was there, we were there until, uh, I was 14 and then he was an architect. So he got a job in actually teaching at the university in the center of Manchester. So we moved when I was 14. So when I was 14 to 18, I was living in Manchester. So, um, those two big moves were kind of significant because both times I had the experience of going into a school, walking onto the playground, not knowing a single person, thinking like, okay, you know, this is going to be, this is going to be tricky for the next uh, week or two, but I'll, I'll be okay. And I need to work out, you know, who are the assholes that, right. you know, I should avoid, who are the potential friends, who are just the, like the losers who are going to, you know, try and befriend a fellow loser. Um, and I had to, I'd have to sort of navigate all that. And um, I did. And I think it was, you know, I envy people who grow up in the same place um, and sort of have that continuity of, you know, some of the same friends when they were five, they're, you know, friends at, at high school. So, I, I, you know, I didn't have that. Um, but I think it was good for me, both in the military, you know, joining a new ship is a very similar sort of experience. Um, and certainly as a journalist, you know, going into unfamiliar environments just on my own and having to build a rapport and get by and kind of cooperate and, you know, work things out. Um, and so, and the other fa- facet of my childhood, which I think was, you know, I really hated Manchester. <laughs> it, it was sort of a nor- grim northern um you know, Kent is the Garden of England. It's right. beautiful. My sister lives there. There's, Manchester's sort of the opposite. Um, it's sort of like the Detroit of, of, <laughs> of and, um, and it felt sort of insular and kind of suffocating and everybody had a very strong accent, and which I don't have. Um, and um, although I did at the time. And I just wanted to get out and... Because it felt like the teachers at the school had all been at, th- at that school. Also, it was the same school my dad had been to. And in fact, we lived in the same house where my dad had grown up. And so I just, you know, I remember, you know, at the age of 14, 15, just thinking like, okay, I'm going to get out of here and I'm never going to come back. And um, so that's another thing I remember. It was just this, you know, there's a whole world out there and I want to experience it. So that's what I did. All right. And it was it was it your dad being in the Navy that took you into the Navy or was that kind of a decision that you made on your own without any input from him or a little bit of both? Oh, no, 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 no. He was a lot of input. <laughs> <laughs> so, so again, you know, I think it, I think it was good. Um, I'm glad I did it. I think probably in hindsight, uh, the army would have been a better fit. Uh, I mean, I'm fourth generation military. I think it's a, a great thing to do. Um, and I, you know, I hope, you know, I have a 13-year-old son, and, you know, I hope that he would join the military 
in some form or another. Um, but I think with my dad, it was, there was an element of him, you know, I mean, he left in his late twenties of him kind of wanting me to sort of wanting to, you know, relive or live a part of his life that he wasn't able to live through me. And that's not great. That's, that's a lot of pressure, you know? And, uh, and so there was a lot of, you know, I went to Dartmouth, the Naval Academy and, uh, he was, you know, Oh, well, when I was there, it was like this. And, you know, and it was only, he'd been there only 25 years earlier. So, you know, um, you know, a lot of things were very similar. And so, uh, I think it would have been better for me to have just sort of struck out on my own, you know, join the army or, or, or something. Um, but, um, you know, these are the only things that you realize sort of much later in life, you know, like, dad, what were you thinking? I'm not going to do that to my son. Yeah. <laughs> and what, uh, what was your, uh, your job within the Navy? So I started off as like a seaman officer executive, uh, branch. Um, and then I decided it was kind of a crazy idea, um, that, um, I wanted to become a, like a JAG, a naval lawyer. And to do that, I had to move to the supply and secretariat branch, which is sort of um, like kind of staff work and logistics. Then I realized I didn't want to become a lawyer because all he did was sort of prosecute sailors that had, you know, drunkenly, you know, groped somebody or punched somebody in the face. Or, you know, so I didn't want to do it. Plus, it would keep me in the Navy till my mid to late 30s. Um, so I ended up um, kind of doing a lot of personnel, staff work. I worked in the Ministry of Defense for an admiral as an aide. I worked as like the secretary or sort of executive assistant for the captain of a frigate squadron on board a frigate. Um, and so, you know, it was, you know, it was, a, it was an odd period because after the Falklands war, which was 1982, I joined in 85. Um, so we just sort of had a war, which had been a big deal for the Navy. Um, but it was obviously long before nine 11, I left in 94. And uh, although there was the Gulf war, which, I tried very hard to get involved in, but they wouldn't let me. Um, it sort of felt like it was this odd period of the Cold War's over, but we're do, still doing all these things to do with the Cold War, and it's sort of a, a bit, a bit sort of meaningless. And uh, so I felt in the end that um, I'd get my adventure sort of as a journalist and outside, and that's that's actually what happened. And 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 so I mean, go on go in the exact direction I was wanting to take the the conversation. Had you already decided? you know, as your career in the Navy came to a close, you were in for 10, for 10, about 10 years. Um, had you already made the decision that like, okay, cool. I'm going to, Hey, there's my, my final paperwork. I'll see you guys later. And I'm going to go, go on down, down the row and try and find a newspaper to go and work for. How, how did it come about to being a journalist? So it was never, you know, I had brief periods of sort of great enthusiasm with the Navy, like oh, I'm going to go all the way. And, you know, cause I, t I tend to, once I get into a system or an organization, um, I have to be careful about this sometimes. I tend to play by those rules. And mm -hmm. So if it's like the definition of success here is becoming an admiral, well, I'll become an admiral. And then, you know, I need to get early promotion. I need to get this score on my, you know, fitness test and all that. Um, but, you know, I also had a sense of, you know, I'm not the perfect fit here. Um, and I can work the system while I'm young and get the jobs I want. But I realized that, you know, the more senior you get, the fewer options you have, and the more you kind of yeah. have to toe the line. And so there's a friend of mine had a drink with a couple of nights ago who's also ex-Navy, although I didn't know him in the Navy. And he 
you know, so we'd had a few drinks and he was just sort of like, yeah, let's face it, Toby, if I, you know, if either of us had stayed in, we would have been court-martialed. We wouldn't have been admirals, <laughs> we would have been court-martialed. <laughs> and I think he's right. I mean, I think there was, you know, um, I have a low boredom threshold and I have a, a low threshold for kind of mundane sort of bureaucrat, bureaucratic work and paperwork and stuff. But I was a logistics officer. I would have had to have done that stuff and I probably wouldn't have done it that well and it probably would have um, it would have caught up with me. So I think I sort of realized all this and um, and I'd always been interested in writing and um, I started doing stuff when I was in the Navy. I did obituaries of admirals. I wrote book reviews for the Naval Review, like an internal publication. And, um, and then I kind of got the bug of just seeing my name in print and writing stuff and having it published. And, um, so I decided, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to leave. And, um, at that point, I mean, I still, I put my notice in cause I had a full career, you know, my commission took me to age 50 or something. So, so I had to resign with a year's effectively a year's notice. But in that year I was moonlighting, you know, I was working for the Telegraph sort of, you know, at weekends for no, for no money. You know, I was kind of, you know, picking up stories here and, you know, giving them to other journalists. So I was, I was kind of like fully really working as a journalist while still doing my job in the Navy. And it was sort of a, it was a, you know, somewhat kind of, um, tense period where I was trying to ru run these two things alongside each other, which were not really very compatible. Right, right, right. So finally, you, you did get out of the Navy, and uh, and then you, you went into uh, into journalism there. Uh, and who? what was the, the first organization that, that you worked for? So I did bits and pieces, like freelance. So, so I worked for the Scotsman in Edinburgh doing theater reviews. Um, I worked for the Western Morning News, which was... Um, uh, like a, uh, a regional paper in the Plymouth area in the, in the Southwest. Um, but the first real job I had was with, with the Daily Telegraph. So like national newspaper, it started off with shifts, you know, and I remember just after I left the Navy, um, you know, I kind of did some creative paperwork to get a mortgage on a, a flat in London. And I worked out that if I had, if it had three bedrooms, I could rent two of them and cover the mortgage. Um, and and I and soon after I left the Navy, I was down to one shift a week on the Telegraph. I was like, I'm clean on by my fingernails here. Um, but it worked out, and you know, eventually, um, you know, I was sort of full time shifts, and then I got a, a contract, um, and then I had a big break pretty pretty early on. So I left the Navy '94, sort of late '94, and then early '96. I got, I got sent to Northern Ireland and that was a big break because I, you know, I was unproven as a news reporter and there was always this, like, who's this weird guy who was in the Navy? You know, he hasn't been to, he hasn't worked on a regional paper for any length of time. He hasn't been to journalism school. Can he, you know, can we really send him out on some kind of, you know, gruesome murder and stuff um, or some breaking news story where a bomb goes off? And um, so uh, the fact that it was, you know, I was in Northern Ireland. It was just me. Obviously, there were lots of bombs going off yeah. and lots of sort of gritty <laughs> news reporting. And so um, I proved pretty quickly that, that I could do it. But that was a that was a real break and, and pretty early on. And your time in Northern Ireland, I mean, you get there uh, a few years shy of the Good Friday Agreement. Was it was it still and does it remain 
uh, a, a, a non-permissive environment. I mean, were that I mean, you said there were bombs going off. Anybody who, who's done any sort of research knows that that uh, it was an inherently violent uh, uh, period of time uh, for those thirty years mm. there. But but did it sort of begin to settle down as as you got closer, or or, or did it remain in that? as I said, that non-permissive, like, uh, oh, shit, I need to be careful what I'm doing out here? So uh, it very much depended where you were. I mean, it wasn't, it was low levels of violence, and it wasn't just, like, bombs going off randomly. Or I mean, there was no, very little sense in that period. I mean, there was in the early, um, you know, like in the early 70s, of, you know, you could just go shopping in Belfast and, and you might, you know, die. Um, I mean, obviously, there's, there was sort of a, you know, a, a chance that, that you might be extremely unlucky and you might be close to something ha- happening. But it, it wasn't sort of random violence. Um, and but what I, but I very quickly became interested in this area of South Armagh, which I wrote the book Bandit Country about. Um, and that was incredible. You talk about non-permissive. I mean, it was still um, so in '96 uh, when I. Um, got there i mean uh policemen couldn't operate on the ground policemen uh you know they they had to be accompanied by uh, an army british army patrol they would leave the police station which was really a 45 military base in helicopters and be dropped you know in fields um and you know the trash basically nothing was done by road because the ira controlled the roads and so the trash was you know flown out um, everything that needed to come in was 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 flown in, um, and it was it was incredible for me to go there and see this. You know, this part of you know it, you know, legally part of the United Kingdom that was just um, essentially under uh, guerrilla control. Um, and you know, it was, for me, it was very exciting because I spent this time in the navy not doing anything. I felt was really meaningful sort of on the edge. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, I was, you know, friends with, you know, intelligence officers in the British army who were working against, you know, IRA sniper teams, you know, and I'd go into, you know, I'd go into the pub where Robert Nyrak, a British captain had disappeared in 1977 and uh, his body had still not been found. And, you know, and I got to know the IRA, uh, it was a very small number of people, probably six families or so, and you'd see you'd see them everywhere. And I, you know, as I got more and more into the subject, I go to you know commemorate you know IRA commemorations and and historical events, and you'd see the guys who were running, you know, a bombing campaign in the city of London. And right. so it was it was it was kind of it was incredible. I mean, it was it was fascinating, and um, you know, I had to be somewhat careful i mean it wasn't ran you know again it wasn't random violence it wasn't like the ira was just going to you know you know murder some guy because he had a british accent but you know you did you never wanted i mean i one piece of advice i got from um the royal officer constabulary police officer um early on was you know never two things never pretend to be somebody or not so basically be very overt, you know, and so announce yourself. Um, don't think that you can just sort of blend into the background because they know 
that you're not from there. And the second thing was never feel safe. Always have a plan to exit. And and so so those were two fantastic bits of advice which I I took to heart. So you know if I was going to you know uh, an IRA commemoration, I would sort of march up to the front, shake hands with the Sinn Fein representative, and say, "Hey, Toby Harden, I'm you know remember we met before. I know so and so. This is this is what I'm doing. I'm interested in writing this book. I was learning about the history, and uh, and then." And then I go sort of go and stand in the crowd, and then I'd see some of the IRA guys go to the Sinn Fein councillor, and you know, oh, who's that guy? And you know, they didn't like me, but at least they knew who I was, and I wasn't some kind of you know MI5 agent right. moving around or or anything like that. And then uh, having a plan to leave, I mean, you know, I would go to, I remember going to one event, um, and I think it was, I got there at seven. And um, there was going to be a speech by, I think, a former prisoner. Um, and the, the guy didn't come onto the stage until 11 p.m. <laughs> and I was on my and I was on my own in this big sort of, you know, uh, sports club. And so what do you do? You don't really have anybody to talk to. So you just drink. So I, I think I drank, you know, probably 11 or 12 pints. And, uh, but I still had this, you know, I could, I could carry it, you know, you know, I could deal with drinking quite a lot in those days. And, um, I, but I was still aware, you know, I was still like, you know, if somebody says, you know, get the fuck out of here to leave, you know, and, and, and so I, I didn't, you know, I didn't think, oh, I'm just, you know, they think I'm one of them. I'm just, I'm just drinking, and here I am. It's no problem because things can turn very, very quickly. Um, and the other thing about that night, which was kind of somewhat amusing, was, you know, so having had my eleven or twelve pints, I then got into the car and drove, <laughs> <laughs> drove out of Cross McGlen, and of course, because it was essentially like an IRA gathering, um, or certainly a lot of IRA people were there. There was a British Army and police checkpoint right outside the square in Cross McGlen. And so I immediately drive into it. And, you know, I mean, my thinking was really about my safety, about getting abducted or beaten up, or I hadn't thought about drink driving. And so as I, as I got to the checkpoint, I was like, shit, you know, I've just had 11 or 12 pints. If I blow into a breathalyzer, it's going to, you know, it's not going to look good. And, um, so, you know, that there is that feeling of adrenaline where you kind of, I probably shouldn't be talking to a police officer about this. Hey, I, you know, I'm not a cop up. in any other country. You have at it. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can, when, when, when something, you know, when you're in that kind of situation, you can sober up pretty quickly because you're like, shit, you know, I can't just be, you know, a sloppy drunk here. I'm going to be talking to a police officer. And so, you know, I sort of, you know, yes, hello, officer, or whatever. And, and, and so, of course, they were, they, but the thing is, they weren't interested in drink driving anyway. They right. just wanted to see who'd been at the event. And um, so I said who I was and was kind of a raised eyebrow at the accent. And, you know, I'm, you know, uh, a journalist for the Telegraph. And they were like, okay, you, some interesting people in there. And I was like, yeah, I think so. <laughs> and, uh, and they just like <laughs> waved me on, on, on my way. So, you know, so anyway, you know, living on the edge. What, and uh, I mean, when you look at, to back up real quick, for, for people who may not 
be overly familiar with with the troubles. It is oversimplified as Protestant versus Catholic, and and it goes much deeper than that. I mean, you you end up with uh, the Protestants who are sort of the the, the loyal or the the loyalists. They they want to remain yeah. with England, and then the Catholics want every England out type of thing. Um, and yeah. that's that's kind of where where the separation is and and you see both protestants and catholics in northern ireland and um i mean even today there's there's murmurs here and there uh, i mean if you think about it, it it good friday agreement was in 1998 um it, it wasn't yeah. that long ago um but even today there's still murmurs of a, a, a sort of return um to mm. violence i mean has it ever really stopped no I mean, it's a, it's a divided society. I mean, it's two tribes. I mean, it's not about religion, but it's, it's about Protestants and Catholics and tribes, the unionists and nationalists or loyalists and, loyalists and Republicans are usually the, that's usually the term for people who sort of believe in violence and unionists and nationalists are the people who, unionists want to stay within the United Kingdom and the nationalists want to be part of the United Ireland, but they don't believe in achieving that through violence. Uh, but yeah, it's sort of very complicated. I mean, Ireland was a colony of Great Britain until 1921-22. And then uh, it was divided. So 26 counties, the 26 predominantly Catholic counties went in, became the Free State and then the Republic of Ireland. That left six counties where there was a majority of Protestants who were descended from um, settlers from Scotland but there was still a large number of, of Catholics and there were lots of areas within Northern Ireland that were majority Catholic. So rather than having 32 counties with a sort of belligerent Protestant minority, you had six counties with a belligerent Catholic minority. And it's just sort of a recipe for disaster. And it, you know, and it, it you know, it still hasn't been uh, resolved because, um, you know, you still have that tension between, you know, the, the Protestant majority in Northern Ireland and the Catholic minority, but they're they're pretty pretty close. And then you've had Brexit. So you, in a way, what they went for after the Good Friday Agreement, which in some ways papered over the cracks kind of thing, um, was a sort of invisible border where it sort of exists in name only. Um, but instead of being kind of fortified and with checkpoints and all this, that, you know, it's just going to sort of fade away. And that was working reasonably well, but then you had Brexit. <laughs> and so now you've got Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom, which is outside the European Union. And then the Republic of Ireland is inside the European Union. So you have an European Union border, you know, between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And so you have lots more opportunities for smuggling and all that stuff which was something that back in the day the IRA would use to its um, advantage so um, I, I go back very rarely but um, but uh, it's still sort of simmering underneath the surface there right well and you still I mean I just watched a documentary on it I think a week ago and and I had no idea about the peace walls that that are were erected yeah. erected as a physical barrier as if you know, as if you're a parent coming in and, and separating siblings and like you go to your room, you go to your room and, and these people literally walk out their door and are faced with a 60 foot high wall topped with razor wire uh, because the people who live across the street from them, like they, they just might not 
get along. So it seems I don't think when people think about Ireland, uh, certainly here anyways, you know, it's oh, it's pretty. It's green and shamrocks and, you know, and and uh, and whiskey and and uh, oh, we're going to go, you know, see Ireland and as a tourism destination. But they don't lend a whole lot of, of thought to, oh, shit, like there there are still issues there. I mean, as you said, it, it's very tribal, even amongst the IRA. I mean, you've got the the provisional IRA, the real IRA, the original IRA, the, uh, yeah. the, the Irish National Liberation Army, all these different sort of, uh, you know, sects right. throughout the throughout the years. Um, uh, yeah. And it still is a, a, an area that, in, at least in some ways, is there is an element of, of danger there. But uh, I was uh, thank you for talking about it. I've, I've been very curious to get, you know, somebody's take on it who's actually been there and seen it. Yeah, well, the peace walls, like such an Orwellian term, because the peace walls are to separate um, Protestant and Catholic areas, stop people murdering each other, you know, and then and and North Belfast in particular. I've got a, a great map, um, not in this room, actually, otherwise I'd show it to you, um, but it's a map of North Belfast and it's got areas in green, Catholic, areas in orange, Protestant. And it's got these yellow shaded areas where it was mixed. And it's got the, um, it's an old British army map for, for patrolling. And, um, but the number of brutal sectarian murders that happened in those parts of, of, of North Belfast and, you know, sort of a Catholic, you know, walking through a Protestant area. Um, and then there's just been a, an IRA attack the, the day before. So some loyalists just need to kill a Catholic, basically. Right prove a point, uh, all that stuff. And then the sort of very kind of intimate kind of murders, which you would also get out in rural areas as well, you know, with like farmers who are neighbors basically murdering each other. But, you know, you, um, you know, you'd have, I mean, Belfast, this new movie by uh, Kenneth Branagh, who's from Belfast, actually does, I mean, he can be a cheesy kind of guy, but uh, I think he does a pretty good job of sort of this element of, of neighbor against neighbor. And so, uh, you know, again, in Belfast, sometimes the murders will be random. It's just a Catholic. But sometimes it's like you, you knew somebody was a Catholic or a Protestant because of family friendships or some kind of business thing. And so you would actually, you know, you'd be killing somebody who you knew or, to, or setting somebody up for being killing who you knew. So, yeah, pretty kind of disturbing stuff. But, um, uh, and, you know, it's still, um, you know, still all there underneath the surface. Those walls are still up. Um, and for me, in the, for me in the 1990s, it was kind of, it was sh sort of shocking, but also very exciting to just, you know, be in this very small sort of patch of land with all this um, kind of, you know, tension and, and, and sort of violence just, just below the surface. Right. Well, and it... I mean, we talk about the the intimate murders between between neighbors, and and there were the obvious acts of of terrorism throughout the entire you know car, car bombings and the uh, that was an Irish band the oh the Miami show band when they were yeah driving through the country after a show yeah. at like two thirty in the morning pull over to what they think is a British checkpoint and it was an it was a paramilitary organization dressed yeah. as British and then a IED goes off and like like nobody was was safe right so yeah 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 do yeah. do yeah. you 
and I'm not going to gloss over uh, uh, over Zimbabwe. We'll come back to that. But having having seen the the tribal boundaries, if you will, within Northern Ireland and being in a in an area where where there was just untold violence, did working in in Ireland and amongst I mean, you're, you're kind of walking the razor's edge. You're, you're interacting with with the British military. You're interacting with with um, with Irish nationalists and British loyalists. Uh, you're interacting with the IRA, who is largely considered by most to be a terrorist organization. Did that, mm. did that go a long way to prepare you to, to report from, uh, you know, Iraq? And I don't, I don't know if you were in Afghanistan as well. You'll have to educate me there, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I was both. Yeah. Did, did that go a long way towards, towards kind of giving you, uh, I mean, you, you don't speak the same language as, as the Iraqis or the Afghanis, but did you, did you get yeah. there and kind of go, okay, I, I've seen at least a little bit of this before. Yeah. I mean, so for British reporters, um, a lot of people for British national newspapers sort of cut their teeth in, in Northern Ireland because it was a very s- small kind of land area. You know, as you say, you know, we spoke the same language. Um, you kind of had access to everybody. Um, and so, uh, you know, it was a sort of a great preparation. And it sort of taught, you know, it taught you to um, recognize that, you know, there's bad stuff out there and there are some good people who do bad things um and there are you know people who um you know present themselves as politicians but are are actually you know killers um and so uh uh, i think it you know if you had sort of you know illusions about the world being this lovely place where can't we all just get along and we if we just sit around the table we can sort it out i think you know I mean, the situation in Afghanistan and Iraq is sort of, you know, a hundred times sort of more complex and more difficult to solve than than sort of the Irish troubles. Um, but, you know, in a way, having done the Irish stuff and seen how that had gone on for 30 years and was still not solved properly, um, and, then you, and then you got into dealing with, you know, um, Sunni, Sunni and Shia in Iraq, and suicide bombs, and you know, I was also based in Jerusalem, and so you know, got you know the PLO and Hamas and Jews and Arabs, and you know, and the, the Northern Ireland looks like just like you know a walk in the park com- compared to that. Sure, but it, it was sure. a good. It was a good. It was certainly um, a good preparation, and then also, you know. You know, I would. You, the British could be kind of quite arrogant sometimes about, you know, oh well, you know, we were in Malaya and we dealt with Northern Ireland, and so we know counterinsurgency. And um, I think in the end, it sort of would get on American nerves. Um, I think sort of justifiably because uh, those situations in Afghanistan and and Iraq were just so much more sort of violent and complicated and 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 difficult to get a handle on than, than Northern Ireland. And in your, uh, in first casualty, it does make mention of uh, potential IRA involvement in, in training and, and, uh, possibly equipping of Mujahideen forces in Afghanistan. And, and there's, there's been rumors about that, maybe more than a little bit of evidence. I mean, did, did you ever f- discover anything that, that led you to say like a 100%, like this is the IRA has been here, 
they've they've helped educate these guys? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, certainly in Iraq, there's like transfer of technology. So there were um, some of the devices with um, EFPs, explosively explosively formed projectiles, um, and infrared um, uh, activated bombs. Some of that technology uh, had, if not originated, sort of passed through. Um, you know, the IRA and, and Northern Ireland. And, you, you know, you have um, links between Gaddafi and Libya and, and arms shipments in the IRA. You had uh, some links between the IRA and the PLO. And so there was, sense, there was this sort of sense, and we had, I, you know, I actually covered this in like 2002, I think it was, where you had IRA guys training the sort of FARC narco-terrorists in Colombia. So there was, you know, there was always this, so before 9-11, there was always this sort of sense of, you know, the global terrorist network and then sort of anti-IRA people and, and you know, unionists and conservatives there would, would always try and play up um, the, the idea that, you know, they're all just terrorists, they're all just sort of in it together. I mean, there were connections, but it was a lot more sort of complicated than that. And I think in... Certainly in Afghanistan, I've never seen or even heard of any credible evidence of any IRA involvement. And it is mentioned in First Casualty because right at the beginning, there was this sense of like, well, we just don't know, you know, global terrorist networks and with us or against us and all that, maybe there is. And Mike Spann, um, you know, the former Marine Corps officer, CIA paramilitary, who, you know, who was the first casualty, first casualty for the United States after 9-11, on the on the day he died, he fixated correctly um, on um, a guy who turned out to be John Walker Lind, who was uh, Californian, uh, white, um, and you know became the so-called American Taliban. He's in fact Al Qaeda, and he was got 20 years in the end. Was released in 2019 uh, with some time off for good behavior, although behavior wasn't that good because he was an he he became an ISIS supporter, but. Um, Anyway, Mike, you know, he had been told by another prisoner that Lind was Irish. And Lind's sort of cover story, Lind had an Irish grandmother, but his cover story within Al-Qaeda was he was told to never describe himself as an American, even to his fellow Al-Qaeda or Taliban, to describe himself as Irish. And so this Iraqi, actually, um, uh, jihadist had told Mike that this guy's Irish. And... And, and he had a sort of a, Lind had a sort of, uh, it actually looked more like a Navy kind of jersey, like a Navy blue military style jersey with like uh, shoulder patches and elbow patches. Right. They described so it as, Mike, a, as a British military sweater. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And so, but also is it Irish? Is it British? You know, you, you're a white guy, you know, I know you speak English. So Mike was, um, was, was, was pushing him on all that. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it was, a, you know, David Tyson, who was with, Mike Spann that day, who's sort of in some ways essential figure in first casualty. You know, I talked to him about this and he was, you know, David was like, yeah, well, probably not, but, but you never know. And it was definitely part of the briefing is if you know if you see Irish stuff and, you know, if you start hearing about IRA, then, you know, we definitely want to look into it. So it was kind of in the air, but, um, you know, the IRA was engaged in, I mean, I never liked the term peace process, but, you know, political talks 
to sort of reach a sort of an accommodation. You know, you'd had the 1998 Good Friday Agreement three years earlier. So they were on a path to, you know, trying to get there and mostly through peaceful means. And so actually, you know, 9-11 was a little bit of a wake-up call from them uh, for them because the Bush administration uh, in their sort of dealings with Sinn Féin, the political wing of the IRA, was kind of like, okay, so we've just had 9-11. There isn't much of a of a, you know, favorable atmosphere in the United States for anybody that could be described as a terrorist. So, you know, so there's kind of a fork in the road here. And um, so, uh, yeah, I never encountered any IRA guys running around Iraq or Afghanistan. Well, that that is good. And at least uh, at least then we we're able to uh, to show that there there was no involvement or at least limited involvement. You do a very excellent job in first casualty. I mean, in in sort of painting the picture, we talked earlier about how you know you you don't really like to read uh, uh, fictional books per se, but uh, but so often with with history books, it, it can read like my police reports. You know, just the facts, right. man. You know, here's this and this and this. But you do you do an excellent job of painting kind of the picture of what the CIA teams and what the Green Beret ODAs encountered when they first hit the ground. And I wanted to to read a paragraph that that struck me. I mean, I. I was never in the military. I've got a lot of friends who, who spent time in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, but uh, but you've got a part in here about uh, an amputation that is uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, pretty well. Well, hell, I'll just I'll just jump into it and read it. So it's, it starts on page one twenty five of of uh, first casualty. Um, Ten minutes later, the satellite phone buzzed, and a CIA officer told Scott he would be patched through to the chief orthopedic surgeon at Landstuhl in Germany, the largest American military hospital outside of the United States. Scott passed the phone to Glenn. Okay, I've got to cut this guy's foot off, Glenn told the surgeon. How do I do it? The army doctor explained the procedure, which involved cutting beneath the skin to saw off the bones connected to tendons while trying to while tying off or cauterizing the blood vessels. In a scene reminiscent of American Civil War surgery, the operating table was a ladder placed on top of ammunition crates. One Afghan's job was to wield a stick to keep the village dogs away from the pieces of flesh and bone that dropped on the ground as Glenn sawed them off. I mean, holy shit! <laughs> it, it, that is the Civil War. That is, that is like Civil War 101. That, that guy is a Civil War surgeon. Here's your doctor's license. Well, so, yeah, so Glenn, who is um, about to retire from the CIA, he may have already retired. Uh, he's a great guy, you know. And so he's a PA, physician's assistant, a medic. He's done that job for many, many years. And uh, the Schrade multi-tool that he used is now in the CIA museum. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, you know, Glenn, you know, he's got a, he's put a six, two, six, three, he's got a, big ginger beard and ponytail and it's just a super cool guy, you know, who um, has done all sorts of crazy shit and nothing sort of crazier than that. And um, he's still like F and blinds about um, the equipment he was given by the CIA going in because you shouldn't really be amputating uh, with a, you know, like a Leatherman type um, tool. No, it's frowned upon. He did. And, <laughs> <laughs> right, and it sort of, um, but it kind of epitomised what it was like then. You know, they went in with very little equipment. They were incredibly adaptable. They just had to get things done, 
how and 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 so okay so i need to do an application don't know how to do it uh do you think maybe i could get some advice okay we'll get somebody from landstall um and also glenn you know talked about the sort of incredible fortitude of the afghans who would kind of whimper a little bit while this was being done often with no anesthetic um but uh yeah i mean he tells the story you know um in a sort of incredible way and in a way all i almost had to do just like sort of transcribe what he told me and that was the you know that was the account but the the detail about the, the, the kids or youths you know whose job it was to shoo away the dogs so they didn't pick up the bits of you know, on the ground, <laughs> it's just just sort of uh, uh, incredible. And um, so, yeah, for me, looking at what these guys had, had sort of gone through, um, I mean, the Afghans as well as the CIA guys and the Green Berets, um, you know, they, you know, the CIA flew in in two Black Hawks, completely into the into the unknown. They were working with a warlord, um, uh, General Dostum, who'd uh, you know worked against the Mujahideen with the Soviets, you know, uh, in the in the 1980s, who was sort of renowned for switching sides and had really had um, no real connection with the US government until after 9-11, when all of a sudden that was the kind of guy you needed. And they just landed and, and, and worked with him. And so incredible um, courage and adaptability. And so sometimes I think if I'm having a, sort of a frustrating day because you know there's bad internet or whatever you know well at least i haven't just stepped on a mine or at least i don't have to saw somebody's foot off you know right <laughs> with a with a multi-tool you're not uh, you're not pouring over soviet military maps and reading the bear went over the mountain in an attempt to conduct right, successfully yeah. conduct counterinsurgency and win a war so right. you know because re- that's what they actually did exactly yeah and it's 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 interesting though the other thing i like about your book is that it offers a different perspective from uh, Horse Soldiers, uh, which was shown in the movie 12 Strong. I mean, the movie, again, Hollywood's going to take whatever creative licenses they're going to take, and they have a limited amount of time to to tell this story of ODA 595 working up through the Tangy Gap with with to, to yeah. College Angie with, with General Dostum. But it shows a CIA guy for like all of three minutes, and he sort of has this, caval- yeah. this cavalier attitude. But I think there's a little bit of accuracy in that he's like, okay, I got to go take a suitcase of money to this guy. And he just throws his backpack over his shoulder and wanders off into the <laughs> Afghan mountains. And, and, yeah. and you, you... So that was... Go ahead. Yeah. So that, um, so that character was kind of a composite character in the, in the movie. And I think there was going to be no CIA person in there at all. But then Jerry Bruckheimer, the producer, uh, met, they were filming in New Mexico and they met with J.R. Seeger, who was the Team Alpha Chief. And so I think that figure is kind of J.R. Seeger, um, who is a very cool guy. You know, he worked out of his Islamabad station in the 80s um, with the Mujahideen, you know, supplying them with stingers and stuff. Diary speaker former 82nd Airborne um, officer, ranger, uh, and he'd also studied, you know, ancient history and anthropology at, at college. And, and so he lives in New Mexico. And so he met with Brookheimer. And so I'm pretty sure that that's essentially uh, JR. But, um, but yeah, they flew in with uh, um, a big bag full of uh, uh, non-sequential $100 bills, $3 million. You know, Dawson got a million, you know, on arrival. <laughs> And um, 
so cash was a big part of it, sort of uh, greasing the wheels. And one of the funny thing is they only had a hundred dollar bills. So if you wanted to buy three sheets, hundred dollars, you know, oh, which geez. Is, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, sort of Afghan sort of, you know, salary for the entire year, you know, so there's sort of some distortion of, uh, of, uh, of the, of the local economy when, when that kind of money was being passed around. And, you know, and that did, you know, I mean, further down the line, I think pumping American money into that kind of system of, you know, tribes and patronage and, and then getting all upset when there was corruption. Well, not surprising really, you know, right. when, you know. What is it that led you to write First Casualty? So I was in BC on 9-11 as a reporter. Um, and so I, you know, obviously a day that kind of put my life in a new direction and, and as it did for, for so many people. And I think anybody that experienced that, you know, you know it's just, you know, a defining moment of your life. And, um, I, I, you know, frustratingly, I, you know, they wanted to, newspaper wanted to keep me in Washington for the time being. And so, you know, I, I wrote about Mike's band when he was killed, but just from Washington. And I, you know, vividly remember Shannon's band, his widow, delivering the eulogy at Arlington in early December 2001. And I remember seeing the, you know, the footage of, 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 of Mike's band and just being fascinated by this American hero um, and this CIA officer that, who, you know, normally those people weren't named even in death. death. Um, and then a couple of years later, funnily enough, in Iraq, somebody said, did you ever see the footage of the fort, you know, of, of that guy with Mike's band who was sort of running for his life? And I hadn't, so I watched it and it was David Tyson, you know, he was a case officer, former academic, um, Central Asia specialist, Uzbek linguist, um, had served in the military but wasn't an elite warrior type. Um, so it was David Tyson who just killed two, three dozen Al-Qaeda guys, you know, seen Mike's band killed, sh- sort of shot his way out to relative safety. And he was caught by, on film by a German TV crew who were there. And then David then had, you know, raised the alarm, um, kind of arranged for uh, airstrikes to be called, although initially he didn't want airstrikes because, you know, he was petrified with good reason that they might land on him. Um, and just inc- just incredible footage. And I, I was fascinated by David Tyson. Like, what did this, you saw his eyes, like a thousand yards there. Like, what had he just been through? What was going through his mind? And um, also, you know, he's an older guy. He was, I think he was 40 at the time, you know, how how did he get there? What was his life sort of, you know, the trajectory of his life that sort of ended up there? And so, uh, you know, just over the years, I was just always very, very interested in Kalajangi because you had Dostum, you had John Walker Lind, you had the British Special Boat Service there, you had AC-130s, uh, you had a big friendly fire incident where you had a JDAM, 2,000-pound JDAM right, dropped right. from a friendly position, Green Berets, uh, there was a SEAL there, Steph Bass, who was awarded an AD Cross. So it seemed like everything happened at Kalajangi. And then, so I was back in the States, and it was around about 2013, and I was kind of a, getting a bit cheesed off with um, covering politics. Um, and so I, tr- I decided to try and track down David Tyson. And it turned out that he was living in Vienna, Virginia, just a few miles from here. And... Um, you know, eventually the phone rang. It's like, hey, it's David Tyson. <laughs> and so I met him 
he was still in the CIA, uh, so couldn't really say very much. But you know, he, he talked to me a bit, and I, I got a sense like this is a fascinating story. He is a fascinating guy, and he, in some fashion, wants to tell his story at, at some stage. And so I just, you know, kept in touch with him. Um, yeah, he would drop off for a year or two sometimes, and sure. I was like, I might yeah. never hear from him again. Um, but then, you know, with with the twentieth anniversary of nine eleven approaching. Um, uh, he retired. Uh, it all kind of just came together by a happenstance. I got a, um, a book deal having shelved the project a few years earlier. And I just sort of had the sense that, and my pitch was, this is sort of history now. We're, we're about to be out of Afghanistan. It's 20 years. Nearly everybody's retired. This is the time to tell this story, which was really an American success story because we, you know, we defeated the Taliban in the in in space of, of a few weeks. And um, so, yeah, so it, it, it all kind of came together. And I didn't know that. I mean, in the end, I interviewed all six surviving members of Team Alpha. Because, you know, obviously Mike Spam was killed and Mark Rausenberger, who was the medic on, the, on Team Alpha. Glenn was on Team Bravo, which was like a three-man team that came in in November 2001. Alpha was in since October the 17th. Um, Mark Rausenberger um, had uh, died in the Philippines in 2016 on CIA duty, although I believe it, it was natural causes, but six of them uh, surviving, one Andy who's still serving, and I, you know, I wasn't sure I was going to speak to any of them. I was, I was very hopeful I would be able to speak to, to David Tyson, um, but you know, I ended up speaking to all of them, and it was not automatic. You know, the CIA didn't phone me up and say, "Hey, would you like to speak to all these right, guys?" Right. You know, I had to, I had to, <laughs> I had to here's their phone the, numbers and addresses for you, <laughs> right? You know, I had to build up the trust and the credibility, um, you know, sort of starting with David and, and J.R. Seeger, who now does uh, thriller, write thrillers in his sort of spare time and does some contracting work. Um, but, you know, he's fairly long retired and fairly public. And the Justin Sapp, who was the Green Beret on the team, still a serving colonel. But, you know, he was on LinkedIn. And so, you know, I sort of hit them up. And, and then eventually, you know, some of the people like Alex Hernandez, who was, CIA paramilitary, former special forces, 10th group, sergeant major, who somebody at one point said, Alex is the epitome of the quiet professional. He will never speak to you. Don't even think about it. But eventually, Alex spoke to me, you know. Um, so, and now, you know, and in fact, when I did go to see him, I think we spoke for five hours. Um, and I hadn't I'd skip breakfast that morning. I thought I was going to pass out, but you know, I just couldn't stop him right. talking. I wasn't trying to get him to stop talking. Um, but I, I feel like it was during COVID as well. So people were sort of at home and I think craving, you know, reflecting a little bit on their lives. Uh, you know, Afghanistan was going south, 9-11 adversity was coming up. So it just, it all kind of came together. Um, and that's a, that's a very long answer. Um, because I guess some people would say, Oh, well, I just was, you know, I just reading an, an article and I thought that'd be a good book. And so I called my agent and then it got commissioned. But so it, was, it was a bit more, um, sort of, uh, a sort of, it was a long and winding path to the, to the book actually coming about. Sure. Well, and, and thus far, again, I'm about two thirds of the way through it. It's an amazing, an amazing book. And I've, I've learned a lot from it. I mean, I've, I've read horse soldiers and I've read the lions of Kandahar and, and tried to learn as much as I can about what, what happened? I mean, it was my—I was in fifth grade when nine eleven happened. So it's 
I remember oh, it. Wow. Yeah. Not. So, I'm sorry. I don't. <laughs> I don't say that to uh, be despairing, uh, despairingly or anything no, like that. But no. uh, um, it, to me, it did. It did resonate. I mean, my fifth grade teacher was from Long Island, and she kept her shit together, but was on the phone the whole day because people yeah. that people she knew worked worked in the trade center, and, and so it, there's always been on you know, for me, a desire to learn more because one day my son might have questions and, and I don't want to sit there and yeah. go, well, uh, I don't really know anything about that. So, um, I, I do, uh, um, also I would, I would love to dive into bandit country, uh, which I found on Amazon for $99. Um, <laughs> I know. I need to get it back in print in some form or at least as an ebook. So, so if you do get yeah. it back in print, let me know. I will, uh, I will <laughs> happily, I will happily buy it. But, uh, I, I do, want to take these last few minutes you talked about earlier about you know uh ireland uh being a former british colony and and some of the violence you you uh, uh witnessed over there you've been arrested in zimbabwe zimbabwe uh, uh correct me if i'm wrong used to be known as rhodesia um the capital That's right, yeah. ca- capital was once uh salisbury is now uh harabe it's it's completely changed yeah. into a an african union country but as a result of that change, um, and, and Rhodesia, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to learn a little bit more. I've just finished, uh, Mukiwa by Peter Godwin, uh, just to try and learn a a little bit more about what happened there because anybody, the most recent time Rhodesia was in the news was when that crazy fucking psycho Dylan Roof went into a church in, in Charleston, South Carolina and murdered a bunch of people. And he had a, on his Facebook page or his Instagram, he was wearing a, a Rhodesian flag. Yeah. Um, and everybody, yeah, yeah, yeah. everybody's associated Rhodesia with, with, uh, uh racial violence. Um, and it, it ended up kind of going both ways where the point where Robert Mugabe, who ended up taking over Zimbabwe, uh, ordered the violent takeover of, of farmlands owned by, by uh, uh, white farmers and and in in Peter Godwin's book, he talks about how few you know white farmers were left. What were your experiences like though in Zimbabwe, and, and ultimately what led to you getting arrested? Yeah, and also Mugabe murdered. You know, he became the sort of the liberator who became the oppressor. You know, so he you know he murdered you know thousands and thousands of his own people, uh, and you know and and many many more sort of died through sort of starvation. So. Yeah, so it was a bit, so this was 2005 and it was a big, Mugabe and Zimbabwe was always a big story in the UK because of that colonial past. And there's a lot of Zimbabweans in the UK. Like, seems like every second or third medical professional you meet in the UK is from Zimbabwe, you know. There's an incredible, like, exodus of, of talent. I mean, it was really, really tragic. Um, and also Mugabe was fixated with sort of hating Tony Blair and, and stuff. So, uh, and then there was this, story as you mentioned of of you know of, of of white farmers being sort of murdered or their lands you know uh repossessed and um and stuff so so in 2005 uh julian simmons who's a sunday so we work as a sunday telegraph a sunday telegraph photographer we both went there to cover the elections and at the time the rule was so there was this act called this law called the ipa access to information and Protection of Privacy Act. It's very sort of repressive law where you could only be a journalist with permission, with a permit. And if you were a foreign journalist, you had to apply to the Mugabe regime to get this permit. And then, of course, you were followed around by goons or they would 
refused you refused permission to enter the country, and you know many British outlets, you know, uh, were were not allowed to operate in the country. So we decided, uh, and a lot of other journalists have done this, that we would just go in as tourists um, because if we if we applied for a visa, we wouldn't we, we probably wouldn't get it, but we tipped them off that we wanted to go. And if we then apply for a visa and then went in as tourists and got caught, that would be bad. And so we went in as tourists and um, we, you know, we had this bit of eye rolling from the foreign desk when we said we have to establish our tourist covers. So we have to stay in a nice hotel. We have to, you know, go on a safari. And <laughs> so, There's a Ritz and Carlton that. that you can put us right. up at. Yeah. <laughs> we went to see, we went to see Zimbabwe play Angola, I think it was, in a soccer game. We, yeah, we had a good time. But we also worked. Um, and, they, you know, we interviewed Morgan Changarai, who was the, the leader of the movement for democratic change, the opposition leader who was sort of in hiding, uh, had been badly beaten um, by Mugabe's thugs. And I remember, you know, we sort of did an interview kind of in a lay-by. Um, and, you know, we'd been there two weeks and um, we were getting, you know, we were starting to feel pretty comfortable. I mean, it was this sort of underground sort of network of usually people associated with the MDC, the opposition, um, some white, some black, but, you know, they were sort of helping us and we'd stay in kind of guest houses, which were really kind of safe houses. They, they knew what we were doing uh, as, as journalists. But on the day of the parliamentary elections, we decided to, well, you know, a lot of British correspondents would cover white farmers um, and and I remember talking about it with Julian we thought sort of oh, you know it's a bit predictable you know and it's also a bit kind of racisty to be like we just care about the white people you know in this country of you know of overwhelmingly you know black people who were you know suffering to an incredible degree you know and and the white people they were generally sort of wealthy. So anyway, we decided no, let's not do that. Let's go. We, we want to go with a black candidate. And so there was a female candidate from the MDC who um, we linked up with, and we decided, and she was going to this place called Norton, which was outside Harare. And you know, we were probably getting a little bit complacent because we should have thought it through and. We didn't realize, or I didn't realize, that we were going to go to a, a ZANU-PF, like the Mugabe stronghold. And then, of course, the other, the other thing, which is kind of, you know, the bleeding obvious, really, in hindsight, is we were white. She was a black candidate, and so all her staff were black. So we were the only white people for, like, you know, tens of miles around. We stuck out like, you know, <laughs> dog's bollocks, as the British phrase goes, <laughs> or a sore thumb, which is more sort of polite. Um, and so... So we went with her and then we, you know, we went to these areas and it was pretty kind of hostile and we were sort of being singled out a bit because obviously we were not Vanu PF type people. And, um, and we went to this um, polling station, which was uh, like an elementary school and, uh, you know, the atmosphere, it was hostile. And, you know, I did a few interviews and then sort of put my notebook away. Julian was still taking pictures and then this sort of Vanu PF election watcher starts you know, uh, kicking up a fuss about who are you, what are you doing, you know, what are the likes of you doing here? Um, and then it just kind of, you know, 
went downhill from there. We tried to make a, we didn't run, but we tried to make a walk for it. You know, I remember we discussed with Julian, like, we're not talking our way out of this. So let's just head to the exit, jump in the rental car and drive off. And there's a good chance they'll just, before they decide what to do, we'll be in the car and we'll be away. And um, so we did that. We tried that and it didn't work because Julian immediately had handcuffs on him. And so it just, you know, it just sort of went from there. We went to, we were taken to a police station. We'd managed to text the office. Um, and so uh, we were sort of interrogated by the Zimbabwean, uh, like, yeah, kind of FBI equivalent, I guess. Um, and, uh, you know, some domestic intelligence officers who were asking us whether we were spies and all this. And I remember one, I remember this guy saying, he says, he just had this big dramatic thing. I think you are from M, M16, you know, like <laughs> MI6, CIA equivalent. And, uh, and, and he completely undermined his, his big sort of play by, by saying M16 instead of MI6. And I was like, excuse me, I think you mean MI6, but no, I'm not, you know, I'm not in MI6. But of course, we couldn't, you know, admit that we were journalists, so we were, because we weren't, we didn't have the permit. So we were just like, we're tourists. And, but luckily on my camera, well, not luckily, because it was by, this was a cunning plan. On my digital camera, I had, we'd been on safari, I had loads of pictures of lions and hippos and right. giraffes and stuff. And it's like, there you are, I'm a tourist. And Julian, he had taken out the SD card of his, of his camera. Um, when we were at the polling station, he actually put it underneath a blackboard duster in this schoolroom. Um, and so he had no images on it. And also, I'd been, when we, when we went to the police station, Julian was taken in the police vehicle and I drove the rental car behind and I had books and notes and stuff and I just threw them out the window. <laughs> so we had very little on us. I had a notebook which was completely indecipherable. Um, but, you know, we, we were charged with, you know, practicing journalism without accreditation. And so we were four, four days in um, a police cell, um, which was pretty bad, but we were just on our own. The occasional kind of drunk would be come in, you know, for a night. Sure, sure. Um, and it really, it stank, you know. Um, but we kept on thinking we were going to get deported. And we had a lawyer who was Beatrice Mtetwa, who's like a human rights lawyer, very famous now. Uh, originally from Botswana, but, you know, living and working in Zimbabwe. So she was representing us. We were in pretty good hands. But we kept on thinking, oh, we're going to get deported tomorrow. And, but, you know, then we were held over the weekend. I think we were four nights. And then all of a sudden, they're like, um, okay, so you're going to court. So we went to court and we were in court and the charges were read to us. And then we were taken to prison. So Harari Remand prison. So an old colonial prison um i think there were two or three thousand people in it and that's when it's like oh shit's getting serious here now we're not gonna you know this isn't a right we're not gonna get our heads chopped off but you know this is bad you know um and uh you know we were in a cell with 105 people it was an old i think it'd been built for 25 um you know we were worried about uh being beaten up being raped um Thankfully, it was very well organized. It was a little bit like actually an IRA prison in that it was, you know, there was kind of a command structure. So there was an, a prisoner who was the commanding officer of the cell and he had his like lieutenants 
who would kind of look at after us and stuff. And because uh, we were white and we had a lawyer, you know, we were a kind of a commodity because the um, the currency system in there was was soap and cigarettes. And so we could, when the lawyer came in, we were like, bring lots of soap and cigarettes. And so we would ha- have the soap and cigarettes, which we would give to the commanding officer, and that would pay for our sort of protection. And we were we were well uh, looked after. Um, and so we were in there for uh, 10 days in the end. And the thing about that is, so that's 14 days in custody. And it doesn't sound that long, but, you know, it was an African jail. Um, and, of course, you know, on day 13, you don't know, you know, we, if we're convicted, we were looking at potentially four years in prison. And so, you know, the, the joke was kind of wearing off, you know. And, uh, you know, the food was terrible. Um, I mean, we hadn't really thought about disease, but Julian ended up getting uh, typhus and scabies. And I luckily, I don't know why, but I didn't get anything. But that would have been the biggest, you know, if it, if it had turned into years, then I think disease would have been the thing that would have would have uh, got us. Um, so yeah, we're in we're in with all these murderers and and rapists and bank robbers and all sorts, all of whom, of course, were solemnly telling us that they were innocent. Of course, um, that's an that's an that's an international truth, right there. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Um, this is amazing. I'm I'm in a prison full of innocent people. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, we so in the end uh, we were we did we it went to trial, which would not have happened if we were Zimbabwean because there were people, you know, who were in our cell who'd been on remand for like two three years. Uh, but we were tried really quickly. We were acquitted. <laughs> so I don't know whether there was a kind of a deal done or you know it, it suited the Mugabe regime to just deport us in the end and and because if we you know I don't flatter myself I'm not sure that the Blair government would have worked that hard to you know get us out <laughs> of, of jail <laughs> but you know it would have been an embarrassing sort of diplomatic kind of irritant um, so yeah in the end we were we were acquitted uh, and deported and uh, that allows me to be able to uh start stories to my kids with like, well, when I was in jail, when I was arrested, which, you know, I mean, they're teenagers now, so nothing is cool, but it used to be kind of a cool, cool way of telling a story to the kids. Well, and I know that, uh, you know, Harare and some, uh, is, is high on your, your list of places to go and visit now, I'm sure. So, (laughs) well, I'm still, I mean, so obviously Mugabe's dead, um, but I'm a band. I remain a band person for life from Zimbabwe, but I would love to go back in, in some, uh, in some form, and I about ten years ago, I, I had a I had a plan which nearly um, came to fruition to sort of to film an undercover um, documentary in Zimbabwe and track down some of the people that we've been in prison with. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that wouldn't have been that great an idea because Mugabe <laughs> was still around. And, you know. <laughs> I don't think we would have been acquitted a second time. Back in the same prison, like, oh well, I see nothing's changed. So, oh, did you right, paint, did you paint the, the walls? Same, they look lovely. <laughs> some of the same guys probably would have been. There. Oh, I, I don't yeah. doubt and it. And I think that, yeah, and, and that cell I think was built for twenty five people. So it's really, it was really quite 
crap. I mean, when we were sleeping, we were, you know, touching the people either either side of us. The lights were never turned off, um, you know. So I guess in some ways it was, you know, an exciting experience. But yeah, more than two weeks and that, that wouldn't have been fun. Well, as we uh, as we wind down, I mean, just in the in the hour and a half that we've been talking, you've led uh, one hell of an action packed life. Um, one of my my final questions to you that I ask everybody is: uh, uh, You've got a microphone to the world. I mean, truly, as you well know, as an author, uh, my my humble podcast. I've got got uh, listeners in you know North America, South America, Europe, uh, Asia. Uh, just, just a handful. Nothing. Again, I'm not, uh, I'm not Joe Rogan over here, but, but you've got a micro. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. We'll get there. It's, it's part of my world takeover plan. Uh, you, you when have you are Joe Rogan. Have me back on. I, w- I will. I will absolutely do that. Uh, you've got a microphone to the world. Uh, what does the world need to hear from Toby Harden? Well, I mean, I think you know one of the things about uh, researching and writing first casualty that was fantastic for me was you know, these are in some ways are depressing times you know uh you know the country's incredibly divided you know there's stupid stuff all the time you know i've now i'm now completely off watching cable tv i'm nearly off with a you know there is so much that is so annoying and dumb you know in our lives um but that period after 9 11 when the country was united you know, Bush had a 90% approval rating. One person, you know, California congresswoman voted against authorizing force in Afghanistan. And I knew at the time it wasn't going to last. But, you know, what those um, CIA officers did in Team Alpha and, and, and the Green Berets and, and uh, the British Special Forces as well, um, that showed what people, and particularly Americans, although I say there were some Brits involved, what what can be done when you devolve, um, delegate uh, decision-making power to uh, a low level, you have a sort of a flat, flat structure when everybody's behind you, when the mission is clear, you know, we can kind of achieve anything. And, um, and to bring it to sort of back to now, obviously the way things ended in Afghanistan was incredibly depressing um, and, you know, infuriating and and we all have opinions on that and certainly the members of team alpha do um this is not the way it was supposed to end it was not the way that it needed to end um but you know i witnessed and was sort of a small part of helping getting afghans out and so these team alpha guys and shannon span mike span's widow um they're working still many many hours every day getting Afghan allies out. And so they're putting all the stuff about, you know, what Biden did and what Trump did and where it all went wrong and the sort of blame game, cable TV kind of game. They're putting that to one side and they're once again just sort of focusing on the mission, focusing on what they need to do on sort of practical solutions to to get people out, to sort of honor the debt that we owe to Afghan allies and people who are now you know, facing living underneath this sort of barbaric sort of Stone Age regime. And so that's inspiring that, that there are still people, a lot of people, and, and also people, not just CIA people and 
Green Berets and people who served, but just good-hearted sort of can-do Americans who, uh, you know, offering practical help or, or money or wanting to get involved. And so there's this kind of, it's completely separate from the government. In fact, if anything, it's kind of filling the, the vacuum left by the government. Sure. And so that's inspiring. And it just shows that, um, you know, the American spirit and the human spirit is, is there. And a lot of the stupid stuff is just going to, you know, fade away, I think. And we, and we can ignore it and, and concentrate on what's real. Good. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Um, I will be uh, I'll be out your way in uh, in May for Police Week. I uh, hope to be able to link up with you. Uh, I think. Yeah, I'll, give me a shout. Yeah, I'll give you a shout. I don't know that we'll get eleven or twelve pints deep, but we'll do our best. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd be under the table if I did that now. I, it's okay. I would cease to function as a human being. So, uh, with that. <laughs> Uh, thank you, everybody, so much for listening. Certainly, thank you to Toby Harnden. Uh, you can find him on Instagram, uh, and he's also got his own website, uh, tobyharnden.com. To, uh, go ahead and look for his book, First Casualty. I highly recommend it. Even in law enforcement, I mean, the books that I that I go about reading, uh, I do try to 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 find uh, a lesson somewhere, and and First Casualty is is indeed full of lessons. So. Uh, give it a shout. Uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and sign us off. Toby, stay on the line, though, for me, if you will. Uh, but to everybody yeah. else, uh, uh, thank you so much for listening. Blue Line Millennials, happy to be back for this uh, this third, uh, going into the third year of, uh, of podcast production here, and we'll, we'll see where 2022 takes us. So with that, I bid you all farewell, stay safe, and I'll see you on the road. Yeah.